Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. So I'm here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies with Todd Harrison. He's the Director for Defense Budget and Aerospace Issues and has had a long career evaluating acquisition programs. Todd, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Glad I could be here. Great. So you've written a little bit about the cyclical nature of the defense budget. Can you talk to us a little bit about the uh, trends of the defense budget uh, at a high level? Sure, yeah. If you look back since the end of World War II, when you know the Department of Defense was created in 1947 and the Air Force was separated out as its own service and department, um, you know, since that time, uh, we've been through four complete budget cycles. We saw the budget go up uh, for the Korean War and then come back down as uh, that conflict subsided. We saw the war come back up for Vietnam and then come back down after that. Uh, and then we saw a third cycle uh, during the Reagan administration. You know, it actually started in the last couple of years of Jimmy Carter, but it really, the budget accelerated up under Reagan uh, and then uh, started to come back down as deficits became a concern for the country and then continued to decline at the end of the Cold War. And then, of course, the most recent budget cycle was really uh, about 9-11. Uh, we saw the budget go way up after 9-11 uh, and start to come down uh, afterwards. And then, of course, the Budget Control Act, uh, bringing the budget down even further. Uh, and right now, the budget is trending back up. Uh, so we're getting you know, into the, the, what looks like the beginning of a fifth budget cycle. Uh, since the end of World War II. Uh, but what this teaches us is that, you know, the defense budget goes up and down. Uh, this is not new. This is not unusual. Uh, this is just the way our political system, and our security system works, is that we're going to see cyclic budgets. Now, if you look within the budget, though, not everything goes up and down uh, with the overall top line of the budget. What we have seen over about the past 30 years is a decoupling of our budget and the size of our force, the force structure. Uh, so as the, the budget goes up and down, our force structure has been basically staying flat or going down in most areas. So especially since 9-11, uh, when we've seen huge increases in the overall budget, even adjusting for inflation, uh, the size of the force basically stayed flat during that time period. Uh, and then as the budget started to come back down, as we started to withdraw from Iraq and Afghanistan, the size of the force went down. Uh, so what that means is that the cost per force structure, you know, the cost per unit uh, in our military has been going way up. Um, our force structure is getting much, much more expensive to operate and maintain and to, to field in large quantities. Uh, and so that can have long-term you know, strategic consequences for us if that trend continues indefinitely. Right. I think this is nothing new. I remember Chuck Spinney, when he came out with Defense Facts of Life in the 80s, he basically was showing the exact same thing. Budgets are going up, especially in the 80s. Force structures continue to go down. So it seems like a long-term kind of secular trend that we're in here. Could you talk a little bit about that? And then also, it seems like the cycles, the cycle times have actually been accelerating a little bit here on the on the budget. So Whereas the budget kind of 
it actually took a pretty steep dive after um, the Korean War, then after the Vietnam War, and then after the Cold War. It seems like we didn't really come down all that much after the uh, surge in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we're kind of on a trend back up pretty high. Um, so now it seems like potentially that cycle is compressing or it's now kind of like taking a new trajectory that's kind of instead of coming back down, right? It seems like the the budget has had those cycles, but it used to be about 11% of GDP. Now it's three. Could it really be that if you kept that up, it would keep going down and down? So the, the cycles can't be as as extreme as they had in the past. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if you go back and look, uh, the decoupling of force structure and budgets really started to happen um, at the end of Vietnam when we ended the draft, right? And so what that meant is our personnel cost had to go way up. And we did not have, you know, a cheap supply of young people that we could bring into the force anytime we wanted to uh, at very little cost. You know, an all-volunteer force means that you actually have to pay people a fair wage so that they will volunteer to serve, to join the military, and to stay in the military. And so that changed our force structure, you know, fundamentally, that you know, now we outsource a lot of functions that we used to use conscripts uh, for, you know, like on the battlefield, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, we don't have troops out there doing food preparation and, you know, doing, you know, laundry and, you know, base maintenance and, you know, things like that. Um, things that, you know, low skilled labor that we could have used conscripts for in the past. Uh, now we contract that out. And for the most part, we use, you know, third party nationals uh, to, you know, perform those functions and we have to pay them for that and pay them out of the O&M budget usually. So it's, it's fundamentally changed our force structure and we have started to focus more on developing really professional, highly skilled competencies in the military, in the uniform military, and then outsourcing a lot of other things. And, and so what we see is that, you know, those high, you know, skilled, uh, positions in the military are costing a lot more. Now, that's really accelerated after 9-11. I mean, we did see some of this in the 1980s, but, you know, this trend really accelerated uh, in the 2000s, in part because this is the first time we had fought major protracted conflicts with an all-volunteer force, and we found uh, we had some troubles with recruiting and retention. Uh, and so Congress just started, you know, throwing money at the problem effectively uh, and adding new benefits for military personnel, um, expanding existing benefits programs, giving higher pay raises than requested year after year after year uh, to the point that the cost of our people grew significantly. Uh, you know, when you adjust for inflation, the cost per person grew by more than 60 percent during that time. And so you know, more expensive people. And then if you look at the cost of operating our equipment uh, in the 2000s and the 2010s as well, you see the cost per platform for O&M cost has been skyrocketing as well. So if you compare what we spend O&M operating funds on a Navy ship today, uh, it's double what we used to spend per ship 20 years ago. And that's adjusted for inflation. Uh, so we're spending twice as much in real dollars per ship operating them, and we still have readiness problems. We still have ships running into each other, you know, getting into accidents, um, not ready to deploy, you know, and it makes you wonder, well, how does this end? You know, how can this trend continue? Because at some point, uh, we're going to be spending more and more money 
for a smaller and smaller force and the force will become too small to do anything. Yeah, in my opinion, it seems like a lot of these readiness and operations and maintenance problems that we have with the systems that we've inventoried is the fact that they've gone through kind of an acquisition system that was trying to basically get them out there, get them fielded, maybe skipping over some of the operational tests, right, that should have been done and their prudence there. And I see this to some degree as related to that, what you're talking about before, outsourcing a lot of the the kinds of specializations from the military. So back in the 50s and 60s, you often heard, oh, well, the government doesn't need the talent to actually do research and development itself or do production itself, like was done in the Army arsenals and the Navy bureaus. They were saying, like the Air Force right after uh, 1947, they very quickly moved to outsource all of that technical knowledge and just keep the specialized knowledge of evaluation. Do you think that that kind of model of, well, we will have these specialized people in the government who specialize in evaluation of technologies and ideas as opposed to kind of what you're starting to see out of the Air Force a little bit with these software factories in Kessel Run where they're trying to organically build some kind of internal capability that has some interaction in the development side with industry? I mean, I think there are a lot of factors that are at play here that are driving our operating costs higher. Um, I think one contributing factor can be the age of the platforms because if you look at the force, the force we have today compared to the force we had 20 years ago, it's a lot of the same platforms. I mean, yeah, we've modernized some systems here and there and added some new platforms, but the bulk of what we have today, the equipment-wise, uh, is same model equipment that we had 20 years ago. In many cases, it's the exact same equipment that we had 20 years ago. Um, it's just getting older. Uh, when things get older, they can be more expensive to operate and maintain. Uh, although, I will say that I looked at some analysis recently that the... Um, the growth in operating costs for Air Force aircraft is not actually correlated with age of the aircraft. Um, they're all just growing in, in operating costs. Um, you know, I think that in some cases we have started outsourcing more and you know, doing things like performance-based logistics. But you know, I think that's still on the margins for the most part. A lot of it is still done in the organic government-run depots. And that's where I think we've got a lot of inefficiency in the system is Congress has put so many limitations, uh, you know, like the 50-50 the work share rule or 50% of the work is going to be done uh, in the depots that prevent DOD from achieving efficiencies because in some cases it may be cheaper, it may be more efficient to actually outsource some of this. Um, but because of these work share rules, they're, they're kind of handcuffed in a lot of these situations. Uh, also, the way that we outsource uh, for maintenance and logistics support, um, instead of paying contractors to fix things when they break, maybe we ought to flip it around uh, and pay them for when it works, <laughs> right? Because when, you, when a company makes money because something is breaking, what incentive are you giving them? They want it to continue breaking, right? Uh, if you get them, give them the opposite incentive of pay them for when it works, uh, then maybe they'd start making improvements to systems uh, so they don't break as often. The other thing that I think has been, at least in the Air Force, I would say, one of the reasons the operating costs have grown quite a bit 
is the fleet is very fragmented. We have lots of different aircraft types that we maintain in very small quantities. And the problem with that is a lot of the maintenance, a lot of the tooling, a lot of the depot space, a lot of the training for the crews who do all of this uh, is specific to the platform. And so you've got to have this whole you know, training pipeline and maintenance pipeline, a lot of fixed cost that you have to pay for year after year, even if you only have a small number of those aircraft left in the inventory. And so I think that's a big problem, uh, especially with our aircraft fleets and especially within the Air Force is we've got to figure out ways to consolidate aircraft types and achieve some efficiencies uh, on the maintenance side and on the training side. And I mean, there are a lot of different aircraft you can look at where you, you see this problem happening. And, you know, looking at some analysis recently that if you look at the operating cost of aircraft, the total ownership cost per year uh, per an air, for aircraft, uh, it varies with the number of aircraft in the inventory, not the type of aircraft, the size of the aircraft, or things like that. So, you know, if we had a thousand B-52s, their operating costs would likely be close to, you know, uh, like a fighter jet's operating cost because we field those in thousands. And so, I mean, you know, that's what that's telling us is, you know, we've got to get into fleets of aircraft that we can afford to buy uh, and to maintain in quantities. And the things that we have in very small numbers, we've got to, you know, somehow consolidate them onto multi-mission platforms to try to get rid of some of these fixed overhead, you know, maintenance and training costs uh, that are, are, I think, adding to the overall growth and operating cost for the fleet. So, I mean, it's a lot of different, you know, reasons there. I don't think there's any silver bullet to attack this problem, but it is a real, you know, a real danger to future military budgets if we allow this operating cost growth to continue unabated. It seems that, at least in my opinion, that we've been trying to do that multi-mission platform for a long time now, going back to the TFX, the F-111. And certainly the Joint Strike Fighter was in that vein that we would have higher quantities of the same type of aircraft, and that would bring operating and support costs lower. Um, so it's interesting that it seems that we've been pursuing this multi-mission platform strategy, and yet we still have these structural problems. So in my view, we have lower operating and support costs, for example, for an F-16, perhaps not necessarily because we have so many of them, but because it was built with reliability and simplicity in mind that you're able to build a lot. So because of the engineering artifact, you're able to produce a lot. And because they're, they're relatively simple to maintain and build, then that has knock-on effects on the O&M side. Well, so I, I, what I'm thinking about for multi-mission aircraft is in the boring stuff. Like all the different airlift aircraft that we have in small numbers, you know, the C-20, C-21 the C-40, the C-37, like, you know, I can go on and on, the C-12s, right? All of these, you know, different platforms, and yeah, they do different things in their different sizes, but when we're, you know, keep a dozen of these and a couple of these and, a, you know, two dozen of those, that's where it starts to add up. Or look at our ISR aircraft, you know, the U-2, the RQ-4 Global Hawk, the MC-12, you know, you start looking at all the different uh, ISR aircraft and like the J-STARS, the AWACS, uh, those type of platforms, is it time that can we step back and say, hey, a lot of these things, 
you know, they're either, it's just a cargo plane, so it just needs to carry people or it needs to carry stuff, uh, and let's consolidate it, or let's not even own them. Let's lease them when we need them. And for some of these ISR um, C2 aircraft, you know, they're really just a truck that's holding a payload. So let's separate the platform from the payload when we acquire it, right? Let's have payload-centric acquisitions uh, where we say, you know what, just hang it on an aircraft. We want to be able to hang it on any aircraft, you know, of a certain size, you know, with power requirements, um, you know, and then we can figure out, oh, well, you know, we already have, you know, a number of this type of aircraft. Maybe we can just, you know, put these payloads on those uh, and make them modular. You know, I, I think that's the way that we can get towards more multi-mission capable aircraft and help lower operating costs. When you get to things like the Joint Strike Fighter, you're already buying it in such a large enough quantity that you don't need to worry about that. You know, if you're buying it in quantities of more than 100, um, then you're already past the knee in the curve. You're okay. It's the things that we have, you know, that's just a, a dozen or so aircraft that's where we need to be looking at how can we consolidate these fleets. It seems that when you have new types of technologies, you tend to get this diversity of, of developments and types of systems that you might want to inventory. And then as the, the system type becomes mature, you start to whittle them down, you get fewer of them. And then you're really waiting to get on that next S-curve of new capabilities with a new type of platform. So it seems that with the Joint Strike Fighter, you have plenty of quantities, yes, but then the component parts, as you were saying, sometimes we want to break out the components, the, the payloads from the platforms, but those things are so integrated into the JSF that they don't seem like they would really be readily available to kind of plug and play into new types of aircraft development. So one way of lowering ONS costs is not necessarily to have a lot of the same type of aircraft, but perhaps aircraft that are all plug and playing with similar types of components. Yeah, and wherever you can make that possible. Now, it does become difficult with stealthy aircraft when you're talking about integrating apertures and things like that, that, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. But why not have, you know, like the communication systems uh, on the F-35, the MATL communication system that uses to communicate with other aircraft, why aren't we putting that on lots of other aircraft in our inventory, right? Because that not only can save you some development time on other aircraft, but also it makes them more interoperable with one another and makes them you know, collectively more effective as a fighting force. Um, so, you know, why doesn't the F-22 have the same MATL uh, data link that the F-35 does? I mean... It's a good question. Why, why did our acquisition system, you know, turn out that solution that the F-22 and F-35 can't talk to each other directly? Now we got to go back and fix that. You know, that doesn't make sense. Um, but, you know, I think that's more, you know, kind of on the operational side of achieving some operational efficiencies and how these systems can work together. But just in terms of the logistics and the maintenance, I, I think we've got to get more and more out of the mindset of every new capability needs a new platform. And we got to be thinking about how can we put new payloads, new sensors, new munitions on existing platforms to give us new capabilities. You know, and I think that that is a lot of what previous administration that they were actually talking about doing, the things where they started moving forward on third offset strategy, 
that's a lot of what they were thinking about, like the Strategic Capabilities Office. They were talking about taking existing things and using them in a different way, uh, giving them new capabilities. And I think more and more we're going to have to do that because we just can't afford to keep fielding more platforms, right? We're going to have to be able to make better use of the systems that we've already got. Yeah, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. And when we're talking about sharing maybe the data link, for example, between the F-35 and the F-22, and kind of like taking these program wins potentially on different components and trying to spread that out to other platforms to also give them a win. It seems like that's kind of moving in towards the more incremental decision-making kind of side of the house because the F-22 had a program plan. It was going to look like X, Y, and Z, and that's what they were operating to. And if another program developed something that could be usefully applied, well, then now we have to go through some rounds of bureaucratic approvals, potentially. And you said something pretty interesting on that. You told Congress, quote, few of the organizations that have the power to add, modify, or otherwise influence requirements also have the responsibility to fund that progress. So, can you talk a little bit about that disconnect there and whether it's contributing to the layering of decisions and potentially stymieing some of this interplay of components? Yeah. Yeah. And what I, what I was talking about there is how when we you know, develop new programs, new weapon systems, uh, we go about defining the requirements for them. If it's a major acquisition program, your requirements are going to go through the, the JROC, the Joint Requirements Oversight Group there. And that's got representatives from each of the services, right? And of course, they're going to be getting inputs from lots of different people. But the JROC, you know, is going to set your requirements for you at the high level. The JROC doesn't have any money, <laughs> as an organization they can set a requirement but they can't fund it it's still up to the services to fund that uh, and so what can happen is you can get a requirement levied on a program uh, but the service is not willing to commit the funding necessary uh, to actually build that into the system and in fact sometimes when requirements are set there's really been no good cost analysis done to know the implications Sometimes you'll get requirements set and they seem innocuous. You know, we want everything to be net centric. But what does that really mean, right? What is that going to, how's that going to translate into the design of this system? And what's the bill going to be? How much more is it going to cost now that you've put those requirements down on paper? And often cost is not part of it. It's just about, well, what does the warfighter need? You got to go back and always ask yourself, well, first of all, why do we use the word requirement? Right. It's really not a requirement. Nothing is actually required. Uh, it's all tradable. Uh, we got to ask ourselves is what's it worth? Right. For that next level of capability, how much is it worth? Would the warfighter rather have more of something else than to have that particular requirement right here? Because this may be prohibitively expensive to do. Uh, or is the warfighter ready to, you know, wait an extra two, three, four, five years? Uh, and schedule before they get the system uh, because of that requirement that they just added? Do they know that that's going to cause that big of a delay or it's going to cause a big cost overrun? So that's where I think we've got to bring our acquisition system into better alignment where people shouldn't be allowed to touch the requirements unless they have the money. I always like to tell people real power, real authority in Washington is budget authority. You know, if you've got you know, the ability to write something on paper, that's great. But if you can't fund it, it's not going to happen. 
And so that's where I think we've, we've, you know, our acquisition system often, you know, run off the, the tracks because people are, are, are getting in there, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen and they're getting in there and they're trying to throw things in and they're not the ones who have to eat it. <laughs> it's ultimately, it's the services that have to fund this stuff. Uh, and so they need to be in control of those requirements and not let things be levied on them. Yeah, it seems that whenever you get a new requirement, it has to be shopped around to a lot of different offices throughout the department. And then no single official can give you final approval to go ahead, but they can all potentially veto or at least extract some concessions. And then you kind of have this snowballing effect where it might not just be one thing that you add to the requirement that creates some problems down the line for the people implementing it. But as you add more and more things, then it becomes more and more likely. And then they try to throw it over to the services to budget for it. And they haven't potentially come up with a fully costed plan. Of course, if you do an analysis of alternatives, that might take a year or two. And then they're not necessarily giving you any recommendations of what not to prioritize in order to prioritize this. We're operating with some limited budgets. So what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I mean, it creates a complete mess, right? And that's what I want. That is where a lot of programs just get get off the rails and they go off from there. The danger is whenever you open up the requirements on something, when you crack that seal <laughs> and you open it back up uh, from what has originally been negotiated, um, it will inevitably cost you more money. Even if you're making the requirements you know, less stringent, it will often still cost you more money. And you know, once you crack it open everyone's going to want to make every little change that they can think of, right? People just start scrambling, thinking, oh, well, you know, now that we're rewriting it, hey, what about this? What about that? You know, this has changed since then. You know, this has changed. So let's update this. And then things spiral out of control. And you're right that people don't want to, you know, stop and say, well, now that we've changed the requirements, we need to rerun the analysis of alternatives. Because it, and no one wants to hear this, but at some point in the program, it may make sense to pursue a completely different alternative. You know, once you change the requirements, you know, your decision to pursue this particular material solution may not hold anymore. Uh, but no one wants to know that. No one wants to take the time to find out either. There's just the inertia once a program is started to keep going. I mean, and that inertia comes not just from the program office, you know, on the government side, from the contractors who are already, you know, either have a contract or have a proposal ready, and from Congress. Once they start seeing jobs in someone's district associated with a program, there's inertia. They want to keep that going. They want to keep those jobs in their district. And so, yeah, it, it just can create a, a downward spiral uh, for acquisition programs. So, you know, one of the best practices is structure your program so that there's a very, very strong disincentive to ever crack those requirements open and start making changes. And we see some programs where I actually view it as a success. Now, I know some people won't see this as, a, as an acquisition success, but the KC46 program, I look at that and I say, yeah, you know, tremendous cost overruns on the contractor side. That's Boeing's problem. On the government side, nope, not a cost overrun. Pretty good with how that program's going. And is it late? Yeah, it's late, but the government has stayed pretty close to those original requirements, so they're not having to pay for it. Um, you know, and the contract was written in a way uh, that the government's actually able to get some money back from Boeing for being late. 
wonderful. All the incentives are working. The government is not getting fleeced here. Uh, the government is paying what it intended to pay for this platform. They're getting a platform that will eventually do exactly what it was supposed to do. No more, no less. You know, I think that's a, a great model for other acquisition programs. And it's because they didn't put Boeing on a cost plus reimbursable contract. This was all fixed price from the beginning, real fixed price. I mean, they had a cost share um, for the first overrun, but we knew that would be breached. Once it was breached, all the other cost overruns are on Boeing. I don't know why the Air Force has complained so much about this program, because it's actually working out pretty well for them, I think. It's late, sure. It was going to be late anyway. Name an acquisition, major acquisition program that isn't behind schedule, you know, um, and they have not, you know, had to pay more because of this. Boeing's eating the cost. I mean, if I was a Boeing shareholder, I'd have a, a different view on this. But from a government perspective, they should be perfectly fine with this. Yeah, you saw the Air Force actually has been kind of coming down hard. They recently withheld, I think it was $360 million from Boeing on, on the KC-46 delivery. Yeah, and, you know, for, for being late, if that's in the requirement, great, withhold it. You know, and but don't complain about it. This is great. You're saving money. I think that that style works out pretty well when, for example, with the KC-46, there's basically just like four new technologies that they're going to integrate, such as the boom and the 3D heads up display and a couple other things. So there it kind of made sense that, OK, we can go in with a fixed price development. There's not too many new things. The Air Force is probably going to get a pretty good value there. I was talking to Rick Whittle earlier on the V-22 when uh, John Lehman tried the fixed price development contract on the V-22, and that one went through that round of bureaucratic requirement setting where it just had an enormous number of requirements for a brand new type of platform, and it just completely did not work out. So you've said something interesting where you were talking about Department of Defense and particularly readiness as a complex adaptive system where outputs are not necessarily proportional to inputs or you don't really have a good idea of what the cause and effect is. So when we're talking about a new type of technology rather than just kind of an incremental advance on what was the 767 uh, for the KC-46 there, do you really think that setting that requirement and then kind of locking it in stone is actually what's best for that development program? Or how can we provide a little bit more flexibility? You hear a lot about Agile going on recently. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the way you balance the two uh, is that you need to have a dynamic strategic plan for your acquisition program, right? Where you, you just create options early on in a program and you don't lock yourself in prematurely to anything. You don't lock yourself into production. You don't lock yourself into a contractor. When you're still exploring what the requirements should be, you want to keep yourself open and just make options and, you know, basically plant seeds, see what sprouts, uh, and then make your decision about which one you're going to back. And so I think that's a, a you know, a relatively straightforward thing to do. The problem is it takes time, right? Uh, and a lot of times, you know, the services, they say, here's the capability we want, and they just want to plunge right in as quick as they can and get it in production. They want to get it to the warfighter as fast as possible. You know, if it's an urgent, you know, warfighting need like the MRAP was back in the 2000s, um, sure, you do that and you pay whatever it costs. You just accept it's not going to be cheap and it's not going to be efficient, but we're going to get it fast. But if it's for a longer term 
you know, acquisition program. If it is for something where you're recapitalizing something in your inventory or creating a new piece of force structure for the future, you got to take your time and you got to stop and say, well, let's go through, let's do all the development and testing and let's see what works and what doesn't before we decide. Before we decide, you know, it's the old mantra, fly before you buy, right? Let's let's fund some prototypes. Let's see what's really going to work here. How, you know, how how are we going to operate this? What's our concepts of operations going to be with this new capability? Let's work all that out. And then let's decide who do we want to pick to produce it. And then let's put them on a fixed price contract, right? But too often, we like to start these major acquisition programs and we narrow it down too soon. We'll narrow it down to one contractor at milestone B, and at milestone B, we don't actually know what our requirements should be, um, what technology is going to pan out and work, and what this thing is ultimately going to look like and how it's going to be used. And we've got to, before we make that down select, we've got to have more information. We've got to know this technology is mature, that it actually works, you know, all the technology readiness levels and everything, like... Uh, you see people say, oh, this is TRL-6, you know, it's been demonstrated in an operationally relevant environment. No, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. Let's not kid ourselves. You know, we oversell the readiness of the technology. We oversell our understanding of the requirements. And then we make premature decisions. And really what we should be doing is slowing down and creating options. And then wait before we make those final decisions that commit us to something. Yeah, I really agree with what you're saying there. It seems that fly before you buy has been this mantra for since it right since Packard in 1969 to 1971. But that was really kind of a continuation of even McNamara, who, unlike the old systems analysis from the Rand day, where they really wanted that concurrency to get you as far and as fast for the least amount of cost, McNamara. 1962 issued 32,000.6, which was essentially the exact same thing as the milestone process we have today. And so he was even trying to break the concurrency problem. But it seems like we hear leadership talk about it all the time, that we don't want to start buying things and putting them into the inventory until after they're fully tested, right, and, and found operationally effective and suitable. So that suitable is the, it's economical to support it and maintain it and all that. But still, we, we still get ourselves into, into this concurrency problem. And it seems to me that back to the budget, as you're talking about, it kind of rules everything. You already had a plan. If you're planning everything for milestone B, you already had a plan. I'm going into production in such and such a year. My programmed funds for procurement are going to start being released at that time. And I don't know that this program is ready or not ready or needs uh, to go for another development cycle or whatnot, but the funds are already there and I would have to anticipate changing that two or three years ahead of time. So it seems like the budget, because you've already created a fully costed plan so you can rationally trade off this system versus that system. Well, once you've made that choice, now there's this momentum to just, you just got to go get it and the contractors want to go get into production. And so all the institutional forces are get into concurrency because it's good for potentially your career. You're risk averse in your career because you don't want to rock the boat too soon. But then that can create a pretty high risk taking posture from the department at the aggregate level. Yeah. I, I mean, and when it comes to concurrency, Congress plays a big role in this as well. We shouldn't diminish that either. That, you know, you're exactly right. Once you start 
laying in those budgets um, for your program, even before you hit milestone B, you're putting a wedge uh, in your budget in your future year's defense program um, for what you're going to need in that RDT&E line item, what you're going to need in procurement in future years. So you're already, you know, making a place in the budget for that before you even know if you want to go forward with it or you should be making before you should be making the decision to go forward with it. And then folks on Capitol Hill, they're looking at that and they're now expecting it and they're going to hold you to that schedule. You know, they're going to say, well, but, you know, you said that you would need this much money in this year. What's wrong? Should I cut this program? Are you falling behind schedule? And that just that just drives bad incentives um, for the department, you know, to to try to stick to these arbitrary schedules and arbitrary funding lines. Um you know, and, and continuing with programs that maybe they should have stopped and said, yeah, I'm not sure if we actually want this anymore. You know, maybe this is not the right program. After all, we should do a better job and there should be no shame in killing things early. We need to do more of that. <laughs> I think that's healthy. You know, I think that's a sign of a healthy acquisition system when you start things and then kill them within a year or two. I think that's a sign of you're preventing a bigger problem, a bigger program failure in the future, and you're preserving options for yourself. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. I think your colleague Andrew Hunter said something that was interesting that went along the lines of, if you're not killing programs and exposing errors, that doesn't mean that there are no errors. It just means that you're kind of suppressing them, and then you're sinking more and more money into what is an error. Yeah. So... I kind of wanted to move on now to the new proposals for the Space Corps, the Space Force. But first, can you set the scene for us? Why is space development so urgent now? Yeah, so, you know, a lot is changing in the space environment right now. One of the big things is space has gotten much more diversified. Uh, it's not just, you know, the United States and the Russians anymore. China's a much bigger player in space. A lot of our European allies and partners are are becoming, you know, more involved in space. A lot of less wealthy countries as well are getting actively involved in space. And then, you know, we also see countries like Japan and India are really growing their space programs. And it's not just nation states either, right? There's uh, more and more commercial activity going on in space. So just we see a lot going on, a lot of interest in space, a lot of new disruptive technologies are being, you know, developed. uh, And a lot of that innovation is coming from the private sector now. Now, at the same time, though, uh, you know, as the U.S. military, we're becoming more and more dependent on using space uh, for the way that we fight. And it's not just for the high-end fight or for nuclear forces. We are growing uh, our dependence on space across the full spectrum of combat. The problem, though, is we're not improving the protections of our space systems um, at the same rate. And so we're becoming more dependent on something that is more and more vulnerable. And we see other countries and even some non-state actors developing increasingly sophisticated counter space weapons. And our protections are falling behind. So I like to tell people it's not that other countries are catching up in their space capabilities. That's not the case. We're still way ahead. Um, What it is is other countries are developing counter space weapons faster than we're developing protections against them. So we have a growing vulnerability in space. And so I think that's a lot of what's gotten people interested in this uh, in more recent years. 
And, you know, since the 2007 Chinese ASAT test, where the Chinese launched a missile, destroyed one of their own satellites in a test, produced thousands of pieces of debris that are still in space today. It was a very bad thing that they did. But since that moment, that was kind of a wake-up call to the policy community here in D.C. that these space threats are real. Um, They're not imaginary. They're not in the future. They are now, and we are vulnerable to them. The problem, though, is since 2007... Not much has changed, and that's gotten people frustrated uh, in D.C. especially, uh, and in parts of the military as well. That We're not changing our space architectures. We're not doing enough to improve our protections. Um, we're not doing enough to develop a cadre of space operators that really think about this as more than just an information domain, as more than just support forces, as thinking about how do we fight and defend our assets in space how do we really you know conduct defensive space operations so there's a growing frustration that you know the air force in particular is just not getting it they're just not improving quickly enough and so what we saw going back in well i mean there have been numerous uh, congressional studies on this topic about what can we do to improve space organization to address some of these problems like i just outlined um And uh, what we saw was in 2016 and 2017, the House Armed Services Committee Subcommittee on Strategic Forces, which has oversight for a lot of this space stuff in the military, they got really interested in this topic. They started pushing the Air Force. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? They got frustrated. um, And the two senior members on that subcommittee at the time, um, uh, Chairman Mike Rogers from Alabama and the ranking member uh, Jim Cooper from Tennessee, they both said, hey, look, we've given you guys chance after chance. It's time that we just break space out from the Air Force and make a space corps. It would still be under the Department of the Air Force, but it would be a separate co-equal service. Um, so they put that legislative proposal forward back in 2017 in the NDAA. It was adopted in the House version of the NDAA for that year. But ultimately, the Senate you know, had not had the same kind of oversight, had not been having the same conversations. And so in conference committee, it got taken out. Uh, And instead, what got put in there was a study provision. Go back and and study this. Then in 2018, kind of out of the blue, quite frankly, as someone who was following this closely, all of a sudden, President Trump started talking about it, how we need a space force. He started calling it a space force instead of a space corps. Um, but he said, you know, we need a space force. We're going to create a space force. And he talked about it as if it would be a whole separate department, a uh, separate department of the space force, you know, uh, completely separate from the department of the Air Force. Uh, and that got people kind of spinning again on this. Um, and within DOD, there there was a lot of resistance. You know, obviously the Air Force doesn't want this to happen. They're going to be losing top line. They're going to be losing people um, and be losing a big mission area. So they were resistant to it you know, pretty much throughout this process. But the White House kept pushing it until this spring, the White House formally came out with a proposal to create a Space Force. Now, what they ended up proposing is creating something much like the Space Corps that the House had uh, endorsed earlier. It's a separate service within the Department of the Air Force. The White House just wants to call it a Space Force. Now, that's gone to Congress, and so both the House and the Senate Armed Services Committees have both weighed in on this, and they included provisions to create a separate service for space in their versions of the FY20 NDAA. 
They are different, though. Of course, the House still calls theirs a Space Corps. The Senate calls it a Space Force. But they're both under the Department of the Air Force. They have different names for their leadership. They have different limitations uh, on what moves into this and what doesn't. They're going to be working that out, all those differences out, in conference committee uh, You know, really this month. Uh, they're going to be working on that. And then we should see a final uh, piece of legislation come out of the Armed Services Committees sometime this fall. Um, so at this point, it seems pretty likely it's going to pass since it's in both the you know Democratic House version of the bill and the Republican Senate version of the bill, and the president obviously supports this. So it seems pretty likely that this will end up in law, though nothing is certain. But what we really don't know is are the exact details of it, of what gets included in the Space Force and what doesn't. Uh, and so you know that's a lot of the discussion that's going on now. So. We have the Space Corps, the Space Force, which will equip, train, and supply space assets. That will go with the Space Command, right? So we have the Space Force or the Space Corps. We have the Space Command. We also have the Space Development Agency, and there's a number of other organizations out there in space. Can you give us a little overview of all the different organizations playing in space right now? Yeah, so that's that's one of the interesting things here is, you know, all the debate about whether or not to create a service for space, that was only one of the administration's space reorganization proposals. So they also proposed uh, reestablishing United States Space Command as a combatant command for space. That one is going forward. You know, General Raymond has been confirmed by the Senate to be the commander of U.S. Space Command. Uh, and so the stand-up of that is going to happen any day now. The combatant command for space, you know, we used to have Space Command from 1985 to 2002. The job of the combatant command, like all the other combatant commands, is to uh, employ the forces, right? You know, it's, it doesn't you know, recruit, train, and equip uh, forces like the services do. Its job is to draw from the services and actually employ those forces uh, in real-world operations. Uh, that job, the Space Command job, has been done since 2002 uh, by Strategic Command. So really what they're doing is breaking out that portion, that component of Strategic Command and elevating it to make it its own separate combatant command. So that one's already going forward. The other Space Reorg proposal was to create a separate Space Development Agency, and it would at least initially fall under OSD. Uh, it would not fall under the Space Force or the Air Force or any of the services. Uh, and so this is kind of modeled on the Missile Defense Agency, where with the Missile Defense Agency, what we've done is we've taken all of the kind of technology development around missile defense and consolidated it and put it into a separate agency that's not under any of the services and it has its own budget. And so the idea here would be to do something similar for space. Challenge, though, is that you got to draw some distinctions between what the Space Development Agency is going to be working on, the types of technologies it'll be funding and developing, and what all the other space acquisition organizations are already doing, in particular the Space and Missile Systems Center out in Los Angeles uh, that falls under the Air Force right now. Um, so there's been a lot of bureaucratic resistance uh, within the Pentagon to creating this Space Development Agency. Uh, there's basically no resistance to creating U.S. Space Command or reestablishing it. There's been mixed resistance on creating a separate service for space. So they got a lot going on right now. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, with the Space Development Agency, I think their biggest task is going to be trying to define 
what they're doing and carve out this organization's area where they're going to focus and deconflict it with all the other space acquisition organizations we already have. Uh, so I think that's going to be a big task uh, for that organization if they're going to stay around. Yeah, you see that the space development agencies recently put out a request for information asking about different types of space architectures. And it seems that there's going to be a lot of players here. So, for example, there was a space sensor layer that does precision tracking. That was supposed to go to the SDA, but it looks like the Missile Defense Agency now has purview over that space sensor layer for tracking for its own mission, right? So it can track ballistic and hypersonic missiles. And then we've seen the Navy, for example, it changed Spaywar to Navwar. So it took space out of its title, but there's still space elements within that organization, within that systems command. Army does, has a bunch of terminals and the like. So it seems that rather than centralizing space, a lot of these recent reorganizations around space are actually leading to a fracturing of, of the space responsibilities. What do you think about that? It could. It very well could. Um, but the whole purpose, the whole reason to create a separate service for space should be to consolidate all of those organizations, all of those units, all of those personnel that do space jobs today to just consolidate them, integrate them under one unified chain of command. Not only do you get efficiencies, operational efficiencies and acquisition efficiencies, uh, but you get better unity of effort. And so that should be the job. Uh, what we're seeing, though, is you're right. You know, you've got Spa War changing its name, pretending they don't do space anymore, and then writing an MOU with the Air Force. It says, hey, narrowband SATCOM, which traditionally the Navy has done. The Navy has acquired those satellites, launched them, operated them. Uh, the Navy is saying narrowband SATCOM, Air Force, you get that mission now. We're not going to do it anymore. You know, so with the next generation, it's all you. Uh, change the name of Spa War, and then the Navy uh, turns around and says, oh, so, you know, you need to transfer people into the Space Force. Well, we don't do space. We don't have any space people, right? So they don't lose any top line. They don't lose any billets, any personnel, you know. And see, the Army, you know, playing a similar game like that as well. The Army has tons of space operators. The Army operates the payloads on the Air Force's wideband communication satellites, um, the Army is one of the biggest users of space uh, on the ground side, operating all kinds of specialized terminals for you know protected SATCOM, wideband SATCOM, narrowband SATCOM. They're doing it all. Uh, the Army even operates, has built and launched and operates some of its own ISR satellites. You know they've got their own constellations of satellites up there. Um, that all needs to transfer into the Space Force. If we're going to you know, achieve what we're trying to achieve here and solve the problems we're trying to solve of fragmentation, um, then we actually, the services are going to have to give up things. The services are going to have to transfer organizations. They're going to have to transfer the budgets to go with them. They're going to have to transfer the people as well uh, into the Space Force. So there's an opportunity here to get this right uh, so that we don't fragment um, you know, uh, what is already a fragmented organizational structure so that we consolidate and streamline and get it all under one unified chain of command. There's an opportunity to do that, but what it's going to take is some strong leadership uh, from Congress in terms of the legislation they put together. Uh, the, they're going to have to make this possible in the legislation and, you know, more directly not prohibit it. And then you're going to have to have strong leadership at DOD. 
Uh, and really, I think it's got to come from the SecDef because it's going to only the SecDef can adjudicate among the services and tell them, no, 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 you can't keep those satellites <laughs> that, you know, those satellites, that budget, those people, that organization, they all get transferred over to the Space Force. Right. So you're going to have to have a SecDef that's willing to make those hard calls uh, and push back on the bureaucracy um, or else. I fear we will end up kind of, we'll make the same mistakes we did in 1947. You know, the only other time in our nation's history where we created a new military service, we created the Air Force, and what did we do? We didn't pull all of the fixed-wing land-based aircraft into that new service. We let the Army keep some. We let the Navy keep some. We let the Marine Corps keep some. Uh, and so now what do we have? We have an Air Force, but we have four Air Forces, really. Uh, we have a lot of redundancy, uh, a lot of duplication of effort. We just need to avoid doing that with space. We just don't have the money. We don't have the time. Uh, we've got to get this right the first time. Yeah, I heard you say recently that you kind of came down on the hard line for the Air Force back in 1947, that they should have had all the fixed-wing land-based aircraft, not just those over 10,000 pounds. Yeah. I think some people might and I would probably put myself in this camp, say that, well, potentially the diversity of having multiple services that do have slightly different requirements, having them create competitive developments overall is beneficial. So the Navy and the Air Force, for example, that that split probably has actually been in the nation's best interest over the long run to be able to create different types of aircraft. So the Air Force isn't determining what types of planes the Navy will will fly. And for example, it's not clear that the Air Force, along with DARPA, would have uh, fielded UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, so quickly. And even in space right now, for example, if Missile Defense Agency, in order to perform its mission, needs precision tracking, and the rest of the department, they canceled it back in 2013. Potentially, if it was in the Space Development Agency, it might not be a priority on its architecture or whatever it might be. You might not be getting that diversity and some of the MDA's mission might be self-defeating. You're kind of throwing money into something where they're not getting the capability to actually implement what they need. What do you think about that diversity argument that having multiple organizations with some overlap is actually kind of beneficial to technology development and actually moving forward and getting away from biases? Yeah, so uh, diversity is great, but you can have diversity in solutions that aren't redundant platforms, right? And so, you know, for example, the Army, they want close air support, and they don't always get what they think they want from the Air Force. If you want close air support, maybe find another way to do it other than fixed-wing aircraft flying over. Maybe find other ways, and that can compete with the Air Force for that mission. You know, And then diversity also, what we're seeing is not real diversity in many cases that let's take you know some of the Navy's land-based fixed-wing aircraft like what they use for broad area surveillance for ISR and ASW, they've started buying the uh, MQ-4. Uh, they call it the Triton. It's a modified version of an aircraft that the Air Force already bought, the RQ-4 Global Hawk. Yeah, the, you know, the airframe, it, it is a bit larger. It's a bit beefed up wing and everything. But, you know, they've got a lot of redundancies. And, you know, the Navy, they restrict the use of their platform to just do maritime surveillance, even though it could do a lot over land. 
it gets put into a stovepipe of capabilities. Whereas if you have truly joint mission areas where the services are responsible for their domain and how to fulfill those missions, you know, using the capabilities in their domain, um, then I think, you know, you would eliminate some of those redundant acquisition programs and then systems would inherently be driven to do more, to be more multifunctional. Why did the Air Force buy an RQ-4 that was really only for you know surveillance over land? Why didn't they take on some of those maritime missions? Well, because the Air Force would say, the Navy's doing that. The Navy's got their own budget to do that. The Navy's got their own program to do it. You know, we're not going to pay for that. Even though we could have added those capabilities to our platform for a fraction of what it costs the Navy to buy it again, we're not going to do it because that's, that's the Navy's job. And so that's where I think we can do better. You can still have diversity of ways of, of meeting missions, but when it comes to the, the platforms and the, the systems that we're buying in a particular domain, uh, you know, I think we, we would benefit a lot from being less redundant than we are today. We would not actually lose that much diversity uh, in the end. Going to that diversity point, it seems that one of the really interesting things for me that seems to be coming out of the House and the Senate right now, there's a few differences, Space Corps, Space Force, there's there's other important differences, but one that I've been thinking about a little bit is that the Senate version seems to have a second acquisition executive. It's creating a new position, a new acquisition executive with all the authorities therein that will, in the Air Force, that will handle a lot of the space capabilities and systems. So the Space Force or the Space Corps isn't answering to the exact same acquisition executive making decisions on aviation programs. And potentially you have some issues there of bias towards the aviation versus space or whatever it might be. And then the uh, House version, it does not provide a new acquisition executive for the Space Corps. So can you describe what's the role of the acquisition executive in each of these services? And does the Space Corps really require its own acquisition executive? And if so, what does that enable them to do? Yeah, Yeah, so I think this is one of those things in the legislation that's still very much up in the air of where they're going to settle on the you know service acquisition executive, that responsibility, where that's going to reside. And then more generally in the civilian leadership component of the Space Force or Space Corps. So recall what this, the Trump administration proposed was to create an undersecretary of the Air Force for space, a civilian position that would effectively be the civilian leader of the Space Force or Space Corps. And so, you know, neither Chamber of Congress went along with that specific proposal. But yeah, I think honestly, you know, one of the things that we do need is there should be a separate acquisition executive for space. Space acquisitions are fundamentally different. The way the programs progress, the types of technology, the trade-offs that you got to make, they're different. And yes, every domain has its own uniqueness to it. And that's why we have domain-centric services to do that. And so, you know, I would let the Air Force acquisition executive focus on aviation platforms and, you know, the space acquisition executive focus on space platforms. And they could still both report up under the, you know, secretary of the Air Force. You know, that that wouldn't be any different. But I think it probably is worthwhile to to separate those positions because they're going to need to focus on different things, different technologies, different timelines, different types of programs. I wonder if you have any information about this. It seemed that 
when they stood up the Space Development Agency, Shanahan put out a memo that called for the head of the Space Development Agency, who was uh, Fred Kennedy at the time. Uh, he was supposed to be a service acquisition executive, much like MDA. They have their own procurement authorities underneath the director there at MDA. It seems that potentially SDA will not have its own service acquisition executive. A lot of that responsibility will still be with um, Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. How is that shaping up? Do you know? And do you think that had anything to do with Fred Kennedy leaving so quickly after only a couple months on the job? He kind of left the SDA. Was that because he didn't think that he had enough authorities to kind of get done what he needed to get done? What was going on there? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the structure and the responsibilities of the SDA are still up in the air. They're still working on figuring that out. And, of course, the bigger question is, are they actually going to have any funding uh, to do anything? Because it doesn't look like Congress is very inclined to give them funding right now when uh, they've not really defined what it is they're going to be working on. So, yeah, you know, I think a lot of that's still, you know, getting settled out. I think, you know, Fred Kennedy's departure is certainly not helping the stand up of the organization. It does kind of highlight a lot of the uncertainty, a lot of the unanswered questions about the SDA and what its role is really going to be. I think a lot of the scuttlebutt going around about it is it was just a, a different point of view on what the role of commercial satellite operators should be in proliferated LEO constellations. Uh, I think that was, you know, one of the sticking points of should we leverage more of what is starting to go on commercial space in terms of these companies that are launching or plan to launch very large constellations of satellites in LEO, and maybe the military can leverage those platforms and those systems to do some of its missions, Uh, or should we be creating unique military satellites and constellations to make a proliferated LEO constellations real for the military? Uh, You know, I think there's a lot of debate about that, and a lot of it is just true just disagreements on what the focus should be or where the riskier approach is or is not. And some of it, for some people, it just becomes religion, that they just believe that it should be a certain way and, you know, they're just not willing to question it anymore. Uh, And so I think you've got a lot of powerful forces that are kind of pushing in not opposite directions all the time, but in different directions. And that's all shaking out right now. And, I mean, unfortunately, I think it's coming at the expense of, you know, whatever the Space Development Agency would be, I mean, you know, the, you know, the stand-up of that organization. I mean, personally, I, I have my doubts that the SDA is actually going to survive uh, beyond, you know, the current leadership team that's there in the Pentagon. I'm just not confident that it's going to be around uh, in the long run. And one of the main reasons is that if Congress really does create a space force, it makes absolutely no sense to have this organization off to the side, you know, not under the space force, but yet supposed to be working on our future space architectures. That should be clearly under the space force. If you're working on really advanced, innovative technology, well, you know, DARPA does that. DARPA already does that for space. So, you know, let them keep doing that. And, you know, the innovative future architectures for space, that should be job number one of the the chief of staff of the Space Force uh, is figuring out what are these architectures going to be and how do we get these programs moving forward. Yeah, all the services have their own uh, 
research labs and all that doing technology development in conjunction with DARPA, of course. But, you know, it would be interesting to have a, a Space Corps, a Space Force, whose organic research lab is actually working for OSD, doesn't even report to the Secretary of the Air Force or the, the chief there of the Space Force. Um, one of the interesting things, you're when you're talking there, you're saying LEO for audience, that's low Earth orbit. And you're saying that SDA seems to be focusing a little bit more on LEO and commercial architecture or commercial capabilities to help augment in a dual-use way. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the new class of private firms that are growing up, like SpaceX and Blue Origin? I recently heard, for example, that Jeff Bezos, he's been selling about a billion dollars a year of Amazon stock to fund Blue Origin. And then this year, they're coming up on some milestones, and he apparently has been trying to sell $1.8 billion to fund Blue Origin. But it's not just in the U.S. We've seen this kind of all over the world. So in China, you have this proliferation of new private firms. I don't know how private they actually are, but you have like iSpace, OneSpace, LandSpace. They all kind of have these uh, names with space in them. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, we've really seen an explosion of commercial space companies uh, in recent years. It's not the first time. There was a big boom in commercial space back in the late 1990s as well. That, in hindsight, was a bubble. Uh, a lot of these companies were able to go out and raise lots of money, you know, start building hardware, launching hardware. And then you had some big bankruptcies and big failures, you know. Uh, you had Teledesic, you had Global Star, you had Iridium. Uh, all of these things eventually came crashing back down. And then there was kind of a long pause. But in the background, you had companies, you know, like Blue Origin and SpaceX that in the early 2000s, they started working uh, on the things that we're seeing today. So out of the bust cycle of the last commercial space boom came some of the companies that are, are moving forward today. Well, I think what people don't necessarily appreciate is there are a lot of big plans. There's a lot of big talk about launching thousands of satellites and constellations over the next few years. Some of these companies have real hardware that's already in space. They have real hardware that's being built today that's about to be launched later this year. So SpaceX, for example, they're building what they call their Starlink constellation of communication satellites in low Earth orbit. They launched 60 of them earlier this year. In one launch, they launched 60 of them. Now, they say they're going to need hundreds before it'll be operational and well over a 1,000 before they reach kind of their full operational uh, capacity. And so they're, they're really building these systems. They're launching them. They're testing them. Another company called OneWeb is doing something similar. They're deploying a uh, large constellation of satellites in low Earth orbit. Uh, OneWeb has a factory set up. They're churning out you know, satellites by the day, and they're going to start launching later this year. These companies have the money. They have the hardware. They have launches reserved. It's really happening. Now, will the business model work? You know, that's a totally separate question. We'll see what happens. I have my doubts, and I, I think there are a lot of kinks that will be have to work out of these systems in the long run. But this really is happening. You know, these companies are, are doing these things uh, and launching them. And it's not just in the U.S., uh, although I think it's primarily being driven by the U.S. right now. But you do see companies in China, quasi-private companies. In many cases, they're basically copying what U.S. firms are doing. So they're moving second. You know, they're seeing what our firms do, and then they're trying to replicate it and do it for themselves. 
I don't think that's a winning business strategy in the long run, but it may not be about business in the end, right? It might be national pride. It might just be about keeping up with the technology. We'll have to see. You know, it's not in just communications either. We see a a, a booming industry of um, commercial remote sensing satellites as well. Companies like Planet Labs, they are launching satellites by the dozen to do imagery of the Earth. Uh, it's not super high-resolution imagery. It's like three or four meter resolution, I think. But if you, once they get enough satellites up there, and they already have, I think, a couple hundred satellites on orbit, once they get enough up there, they could always have a satellite passing over view of any particular point on earth so they can provide continuous coverage of the earth instead of just periodic coverage and so these are you know this high revisit rate uh, that some of these companies are pushing to achieve you know these are kind of new capabilities that we haven't really seen before and you could be a lots of interesting commercial applications a lot of interesting government and military applications from these as well and i think for the most part the u.s military has been caught flat-footed by a lot of these developments and, and didn't really see it coming until it was already upon them. Uh, and they're trying to think about, you know, are there security risks here that we haven't anticipated? And if there are, is there anything we can do about it through the licensing and regulation process? And could we take advantage of these systems, of these commercial systems, and can we use them for military purposes and so, you know, I think that's where the military is today is they're trying to, to kind of catch up here with what the commercial industry is doing and figure out how they can leverage it. So on the commercial industry side, we've seen people like Elon Musk take a tremendous risk posture. Uh, they've been kind of moving fast, trying to get systems out in a couple of years rather than many years, up to a decade or more. Um, and you've heard this kind of reflected back in the Department of Defense leadership in the Air Force and the OSD level. They've been talking about going fast, right? They've consistently been hearing about agile processes, DevSecOps, and all of that. And so one of the ideas of getting a Space Force is to kind of create that culture that's adaptive, that's quick, that's focused on space, that can get systems out in a short timeline. And you've actually seen um, the Air Force do kind of a lot of work to streamline a lot of things. So for example, William Roper has created four new program executive offices. There used to be one, now there's five for space, and he's been able to delegate a lot of programs down to that level so things can go faster. The Air Force has been using the Section 804 authorities, for example, to streamline the requirements in the 5000.01 processes. The Air Force has been using this much more, more than half, much more than half, I think, of the all the Section 804s have been in the Air Force. And we've seen some for some even pretty large programs like uh, the Next Generation OPIR. And then also, of course, they've been making good use of contract authorities like other transactions. So does this really leave the budget process on the critical path? Is the budget really that process that's slowing things down from implementing an agile process within the services? In many ways, it does. So first of all, I would offer some caution that it's too soon to tell if these changes that have been made in the acquisition process are actually going to result in programs you know, getting out into the field faster. It's too soon to tell. The signs are promising right now. Uh, things seem, seem to be getting accelerated, but... It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't been enough time yet uh, to see if this is really going to work consistently. 
The other note of caution is some of these Section 804 authorities to streamline the acquisition process you know, by basically making it a prototype system uh, at first. The Air Force is getting called to task on overusing it by Congress. So, you know, there's the potential that Congress could take away some of these authorities if they see that they believe it's over being overused or misapplied. Uh, to programs. And so the next generation OPIR, missile warning satellites, that's a prime example of where if you talk to folks on the Hill, they'll say, this is not the type of program we intended when we created this separate authority. We don't think the Air Force should be using it here. You know, they want the Air Force to go fast on next gen OPIR. I think everyone does, especially STRATCOM. But at the same time, you, you got to be careful not to be perceived as you know abusing the authorities you're given or unless they be taken away then back to the budget process you can speed up all this acquisition stuff as much as you want we still have a budget process where uh, you've got to prepare your budget request about two years in advance of when you're going to use it uh, it's a two-year budget process to get through so if you've got a really cool idea of something we should do today we can put together a budget proposal and in about two years you might have funding appropriated to actually start just to start for one thing what that does is it drives us into systems acquisitions platform acquisitions when acquiring a platform is not always the right solution uh, so say for example I've got some cool new technology that I can make a cool sensor out of. And if I put it on a satellite, I can sense some new thing or sense it in a new way. Well, you know, I might have that sensor just about ready to go. You know, and then I, I look around, I'm like, oh, here's a commercial company that's launching some satellites and they have extra space for a secondary payload, you know, a hosted payload to ride on their satellite. My sensor will work. Hey, I can just use this. Uh, I don't have to buy a whole satellite. I can just put my sensor hosted on someone else's satellite and boom, I'll be going. Uh, well, commercial companies, you know, they might know about a year or two in advance uh, if they're going to have place for a hosted payload. And you've got to negotiate that. And you've got to integrate the payload and get it ready to go in time for launch. Um, so they need a decision right now because they're going to launch. With our current budget process, though, if we want to buy a hosted payload space and buy a sensor to put on it, we need at least two years <laughs> to make that happen. So the timelines just don't match up. Uh, that by the time that we put in a budget request and it goes all the way through the system and we've got appropriations and then we can go and we can put that on a contract, that satellite that had the opportunity for us to use is long gone. They're committed. They've either launched or they're on their way to launch, and it's too late for us to try to integrate with them. So I think in some cases, the budget process is causing us to miss out on opportunities that pushes us uh, in the direction of always acquiring unique military satellites. And that's not necessarily a good thing. And so we, I think we need to find a way to, to work around that. I think that's a good point that when you have to take all of the it takes several years to kind of go through this process and you have to visit many offices to get approval. It's very difficult to do. So once you go ahead and have a program that's kind of making it through that process, everyone wants to kind of pile on. And so right. you're just gravitating the thing because it was so difficult that you want to just do a new platform now and do it all together rather than trying to incrementally do it one at a time by component, by payload, do it quickly. You've made this point earlier on OPIR that the budget submissions have actually kind of underfunded 
OPIR. And OPIR was supposed to be launched in five years to make it within that Section 804 two to five year rapid prototyping thing. But then if the budget is not really coming in at the necessary level, they're going to have to stretch out and then they might get into trouble for that. Now, potentially that was kind of baked into the plan already that they're trying to do too much too fast. They couldn't actually have ramped up all that staff really. But it looks like some of that budget is making a self-fulfilling prophecy that this thing is going to get congressional attention and it might come back down on the rest of the Section 804s. So could you react to that? And one other thing that I saw that was interesting in the uh, National Defense Authorization Act that's being proposed for FY 2020 is that they're actually repealing what was Section 828 of the FY16 NDAA, which went along with the Section 804. So Section 804 says, you can go fast on these programs if we give you authority. You can you don't have to go through some of that milestone or the requirements process. And then Section 828 basically said, we're establishing a rapid prototyping fund. So cost growth on major defense acquisition programs, 3% of that in a very convoluted way, would actually go into this fund for rapid prototypes. And that is where your pre-funded account so that you could do these rapid prototypings comes from so you don't have to do the two-year process. But they've repealed that. So so now we have Section 804 authorities, but there's no bucket of money in order that you can grab from and go fast with it. So what do you think is going on? Yeah, so with next-gen OPIR, it was very unusual in last year's budget request that the Air Force put in a request for this program, basically kicking off this program on you know, an expedited timeline. And by their own program cost estimates, they underfunded it in the budget request over five years by about $1.6 billion. It's pretty unusual to start a program with a budget wedge that's underfunded by that much. It left everyone kind of scratching their heads. Of course, you know, folks on the Hill asked, what are you doing? Where's that extra money going to come from? Uh, And the answer was, well, in the next few years, we're going to just reprogram money, unused money out of other Air Force accounts, and we'll move it over into here, uh, into this account. So reprogramming money, like, yeah, that, you know, that can help on the margins, but not to the extent that they were planning to use on this program. And so Congress has, has started restricting that and said, well, you know, we're not going to give you all the reprogramming you want. You really need to budget for this. And then this year, you know, just a few weeks ago, the Air Force, when they submitted the reprogramming request, they didn't even request to move all the money into next-gen OPIR that would even be necessary to keep it on schedule. So it just baffles the mind what's going on here on both sides you know, on Congress and within the Air Force on why they're underfunding this program, underfunding it relative to what they said it needed to keep it on a five-year timeline. Then in terms of this this other provision in the law that would create the funding pool, if I remember correctly, that was a provision put in place by the late Senator McCain. And he put that in there. It was really built as a punishment. So if any of the services have a cost overrun, all of their other program research and development accounts have to get cut by a certain percentage, you know, as a penalty for that cost overrun on one program. And then the money from that just gets deposited in this other account. So it created a, you know, kind of a administrative headache for the services. Uh, They did have the Air Force, if you read their budget documents from this year, they did have an overrun 
you know, in a previous year. And so they had to implement the cut. There was some small amount, uh, but all these little line items in the budget are being cut. I mean, one of the problems with it is it's group punishment, right? So one program behaves badly. Now you punish all of them by giving all programs the penalty cut. That doesn't necessarily create positive in incentives uh, within the system. But also, you know, the fact that a, a program has a cost overrun, the last thing you want to do is actually cut its funding uh, at that time. If anything, you want to kill it, <laughs> right? Um, but just trimming its funding, you're likely going to create other problems that then cause future cost overruns as well uh, and schedule delays. And so, you know, it's a tricky process. I don't know if this was the right solution. I completely agree with the sentiment that there need to be consequences. There needs to be some sort of accountability uh, when programs do not perform well. I've said this before, I would put the accountability more on the individuals than on the overall institution. And if you incentivize the individuals on the program, particularly program management, then I think, you know, you might actually see some changes in behavior. Now, you know, people aren't going to like that. I know the unions aren't going to like that. And the civil service folks aren't going to like it. But, uh, you know, that's what businesses do is they hold the executives accountable uh, when they screw up managing something. So, I, you know, I would encourage Congress to go look at other alternatives rather than, you know, this kind of uniform percentage cut off all the programs. But, yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot of these authorities that were granted in the last few years, the services are still trying to figure out how to use them, how do they want to use them. Congress is still trying to figure out, are they comfortable uh, with the way these reforms are being used? So I expect we're going to continue to see changes in the law as they kind of refine this uh, and figure out what it is they want. I like what you said there about trying to bring accountability on people rather than these programs. It seems like the GAO will often come in and say something like, you know, you didn't follow these processes. I needed more of these processes. And there doesn't really seem to be any accountability on the individuals. They're just going to yeah. move on after a year or two. So there's already been program decisions when they came on. So they're inheriting these decisions that they may or may not have agreed with. And then they don't expect to necessarily be held account for their decisions after they leave because they're going to go to a different billet on their career course. So what would that organizational structure look like in order for accountability to be descended upon people rather than programs or institutions as the abstract thing? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, you know, it, it would require a, a rethinking uh, of a lot of these positions, these job descriptions. I mean, obviously, you don't want to take a program manager uh, who just got on the program, it's only been there six months, and hold them accountable for decisions that were made, you know, two, three years before. That would not be fair. But at the same time, when that person is making decisions, uh, you do want them to feel that they are going to be personally accountable. So I would look at things like, you know, going after pay of people. If you can show that that person, you know, withheld information from senior decision makers, withheld information from Congress that was adverse about the program, you know, there ought to be consequences for that. Uh, if the person made a decision that introduced more risk to the program or ended up having long-term adverse consequences that were foreseeable, so I'm talking negligence here, then there ought to be consequences, you know, and if you don't discover it until long after, you know, you ought to be able to go after back pay. You ought to be able to go after pensions for this. And I'm not talking about all of their pay or all of their pension. We're talking, you know, cuts on the margins. Enough of an incentive, though, 
to make people think twice, to make people stop and think, you know what, you know, this is someone's money that I'm playing with here. This is real. This money does not belong to me. It belongs to the taxpayers. And I'm going to be held accountable for the decisions I make. And, you know, put that fear into them that you got to think twice here. And most importantly, don't withhold information. Don't withhold adverse information. You know, that's where programs get into a lot of trouble is they try to keep quiet when they're having problems. And what we want to encourage is for people to be wide open and transparent. You know, hey, we thought this technology was ready. Turns out it's not. It's not at TRL 6. It's at TRL 4. As soon as they figure that out, they need to disclose it, right, to the right people up the chain of command, depending on class, you know, clearance levels, uh, and to Congress, right? And if they disclose it, fine. You know, not going to hold you accountable then because then we're going to work and we're going to manage it and we're going to make sure, uh, you know, that we try to mitigate the effects of this uh, information. Uh, but it's when they cover it up or they conceal it and they try to pretend as nothing's going on. They try to proceed on the program even knowing the technology is not ready. Um, that's when we run into problems. Let me kind of guess here at what some of the challenges are because it seems that you have this pre-programmed plan it's been budgeted for, and that's what Congress is expecting, and that's what OSD leadership is expecting. And then one of the issues is when one of these guys who's now been handed this project to go execute, he finds problems with it, right? His organization and his organizational standing have been tied to the program and the program budget. And if he's trying to show these errors or he's trying to redirect so that he can take advantage of new opportunities and correct errors. Well, he's changing the plan. The plan has changed. Then people might call for a rebaseline, whatever it might be. But Roland McKean, who was one of the founders of the planning programming budgeting system with uh, Charles Hitch, he said something interesting. He said, well, you know, frequent changes to plan make you look like an oaf to, to leadership. And so everyone wants to basically, you know, keep going and then they're going to kind of move on before the consequences are fully known potentially. And it's not in their interest and it's not in their organizational interest to kind of expose these errors because then that brings doubt that might bring budget cut. So the organization tied to the funding through the program, if there's an issue with the program, then the organization might lose its standing and this causes a lot of problems. So what do you think about that, that problem of um, if you expose errors? in the current way that the systems are managed, then it's really, you're putting yourself in jeopardy. So you kind of want to suppress those errors. Yeah. So we got to change those incentives, right? Um, and it shouldn't be about frequent changes to programs because we shouldn't have, you know, we shouldn't view program plans as being set in stone. When you're developing new technology, none of your long-term plans should be in stone. You should recognize that you're going to encounter unforeseen things. And so you need to be able and willing to adapt as you go and that should not be viewed uh, as a weakness that should be viewed as a strength and so we've got to change the incentives there so that people don't view it uh, as a weakness that they're adapting right that's what they're doing and that's logical <laughs> that's smart uh, what's foolish is trying to pretend that you're going to execute to some you know preordained plan when everyone on the program knows you're not going to be able to execute to that you know so having that cognitive dissonance of you know on the one hand saying oh yeah this is our program plan 
but then on the inside managing to something different, that's what makes you look like a fool. Uh, and that's what gets you in trouble uh, at the end of the day when one day in the future it's going to come out that you know what you're actually you know managing to and building to is very different than the plan that has been promised. Uh, I think what happens a lot of times though is you know managers come in and they think, okay, I see this difference between what's really going on and what we say is going to happen, and they think, well, I can try to turn it around, I can try to catch up, or even if I can't. I'm only going to be here for two or three years and this is not going to, you know, come to fruition and be a problem until after I'm gone. So I'll just manage through it. No reason for me to make a big fuss out of having to rebaseline or anything while I'm here. That'll be the next guy's problem. Uh, so those are, you know, incentives that we've got to change, that we've got to, to get rid of, you know, in the system and in the culture. I wanted to get to one thing that you said that was really interesting that I think could help mitigate some of these problems with redirecting funding, changing your plans, and doing things on a quick and iterative basis. You told Congress that you'd like to see them create something like a working capital fund for space innovation. Could you describe that real quick? Yeah, so I think that's one of the ways you can help get around this budget uh, process cycle uh, where it takes about two years from the time you have an idea to the time you can get funding to pursue the idea is, you know, we have these working capital funds uh, in other areas. And what do we do is we use it uh, as basically a pool of money that, you know, the services put into a little bit every year. Um, and not knowing, you know, exactly when or how much is going to be taken out, but knowing the types of activities that you're going to spend out of this fund. And so you always keep a balance of funding in your working capital fund, and you just spend out of it as you need to, you know, as the need arises. I would, I would envision doing something like that on a much smaller scale uh, for space acquisitions so that you have a pool of funding just sitting there and available and you can use it when you see an opportunity. When you say you've got a payload and there's a sat commercial satellite being launched and they have a spot where they could host your payload on their satellite but they need to know within three months you've got money available where you can buy that spot. Right. Uh, or you see, you know, some new innovative technology being developed. You're like, hey, I could use that on this system that I'm going to be launching soon. I'm going to buy that right now. Um, so for small things, you know, relatively small acquisitions, if you will, no big programs or anything like that, more so that you could take advantage of opportunities, really. You know, that's what I would see, you know, the, the purpose of a, a space, you know, innovation working capital fund would be. The challenge there is the services tend to not like working capital funds because, you know, they open them up to scrutiny for how the money's being spent and everything. Congress tends to not like working capital funds because they, you know, usually are only going to hear about after the fact how the money was used and they want to be more actively involved up front uh, in making decisions about how things being, you know, allocated. So they have to give up a little bit of authority there. But we have it working in other areas, uh, I think that we could make it work in space as well. And I think space is such a high, you know, it's got such a high focus, high um, uh, attention by Congress right now that I think this is one area where they, you know, if DOD would propose it, I think they could get Congress to go along with it. Todd Harrison, thanks for being on Acquisition Talk. Glad I could be here. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. 
If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.